Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today, I have Keith Black with me. Keith, how are you today? Very well, Brian. Awesome. And I'm excited for this one. Um, you and your organization have just incredible amount of content, and it, it might actually warrant multiple conversations. But today, we're going to be focused on the alternative investment universe, uh, what it is, what it isn't, how it's developed over the past few years, what you've seen professionally in that space, and then really want to dig in to uh, the work that you've been doing with cryptocurrencies and digital assets. So before we get into it, maybe give a little bit of background on yourself and the organization. Uh, so my name's uh, Keith Black, and I, I grew up in uh, in the trading area. So I've been a trader of uh, commodity derivatives, equity derivatives, and I built quant equity models. I've been in uh, investment consulting. I worked in um, university setting where I where I taught courses on on hedge funds and private equity, and now for the last ten years. I've been with the CHI Association. So at the Chartered Alternative Investment Analyst Association, or CHIA, CHIA.org, uh, what we do is we educate the world about alternative investment. So we have a, a one-year program, takes about 400 hours of study, about 60% pass rate, where people will learn about private equity and venture capital, structured products and credit derivatives, hedge funds and managed futures, and then this whole world of real assets. So real estate, commodities, farmland, timberland, infrastructure, and how all of this fits together in an institutional portfolio. So what do pensions do? What do sovereign wealth funds do? What do endowments, foundations, and family offices do? And how do they interact with all of these uh, alternative investment asset classes? And, and let's start very basic. How do you define an alternative asset? Uh, you could basically say it's anything that's not traditional, 
right? And so traditional, we say stocks, bonds, and cash. So anything that's not stocks, bonds, and cash could be uh, an alternative investment. So we, we talked about uh, private equity, hedge funds, real assets, and, and structured products as the main categories of alternative investment. And you know, I'll, I'll turn that on its head a little bit. I don't want to hear your commentary. I've been in the real estate space for you know a decade plus. I was fortunate enough to marry into a family office that had exposure to private equity and venture capital for a long time. But it seems to me that the trend line is really moving towards alternatives being part of the mainstream. What are your thoughts there and what have you seen during your career? Well, at, at Kaya, we've been um, teaching and studying alternatives since 2002. And at that point, we estimated about 5% of global institutional wealth was in the alternative investment space. But more recently, that's grown to about 13%. And so over the last 20 years, uh, we've seen a two and a half times uh, increase in the share of, of alternative investments in the global portfolio. And of course, as you said, alternative investments are becoming more mainstream or more, uh, more traditional. And some people might say that something like real estate or private equity actually predated the public equity market. Yeah, I've never thought of it that way, but that actually makes a lot of sense. You know, there's an old adage in European family offices that they should diversify by buying art, real estate, and gold. So from that perspective, some of these families that have been investing for a very long time, multi-generational, hundreds of years, they were, you know, in alternatives before there were even maybe stock markets. Uh, so the interesting perspective there. And I'm going to ask you kind of an unfair question. I know you focus on the institutional side, but like I said, you know, this, this democratization of access to alternatives, fractionalization of ownership amongst what would be called kind of the retail investor, right? The individuals and families, non-institutional folks. How have you seen that play out and its impact within the alt space? Well, the SEC has a, a definition of how investment funds are uh, are designed to work. And so the, the public funds that are available to everyone are uh, compliant with the Investment Company Act of 1940. So all of the mutual funds uh, uh, are, are compliant with that act. It, but in the institutional world, we work with a private placement exemption. Under 3C1 of, of that Investment Company Act, you have uh, accredited investors who have a million dollars in net worth or two to 300,000 in, in income. And then 3C7 are qualified purchasers that have over $5 million in wealth. And so the SEC says, if, if you only sell your fund to accredited investors and qualified purchasers, you don't have to follow all of the mutual fund rules on, uh, on disclosure and leverage and diversification and all of that. Uh, but what we're seeing more recently is the growth of a liquid alternatives market. So in the private hedge fund business, there's about $3.6 trillion. But between 40 act funds in the US and USITS funds in Europe, there's about $900 billion of, uh, of assets that are in funds with hedge fund-like objectives that are available to these retail investors. And so they look like mutual funds. They have a prospectus and, and a daily NAV, disclosure of holdings, limits on, on concentration of leverage and, and private assets. So there's really been a, a tremendous growth in those funds that are available to retail investors. And so retail investors in an ETF or a mutual fund format can access managed futures or long short equity or long short credit, commodities, currencies, volatility. A lot of these things that we could use to diversify our portfolio 
are now readily available in uh, retail investor products. And do you think that's a good thing? Uh, what we see is that uh, the, the money kind of comes and goes, right? The institutional investors can afford to be more patient. They understand benchmarking and risk and cycles and all of that. But retail, uh, we're afraid, kind of follows the, the hot money, right? And so as long as something's performing well, the, the flows are going to be strong. But as soon as that performance turns around, uh, the, the flows tend to, uh, tend to reverse. And the, the goal of a lot of hedge funds is, of course, to hedge or diversify and bring something different to our, our portfolio. And if the, if the stock markets are going up literally 12% a year, as they've done you know, since the, the beginning of 2008, there isn't really a lot of need for, for hedge funds in the portfolio. And so at this point in the cycle, we're concerned that the people are pretty heavy on the on the equities and pretty light on the on the hedges and, and defensive assets. And they might not be ready for an equity drawdown. Which is a perfect segue into what we're going to be focusing on for our conversation, which is cryptocurrencies and digital assets. But, but before that, I, I want to caveat you and your organization have incredible content beyond just this specific subject. And we might have to have you come on again because your work within the IPO SPAC direct listing private equity space is also extremely compelling. But this uh, topic, I think, is is timely. So again, um, I always like to start with definitions um, because I'm still learning about this world. When you're talking about crypto and, and some of these digital assets, it seems like the place to start is blockchain and distributed ledgers. Could you maybe walk us through what those things are and how they underpin this asset class? Right. So the idea of, uh, of this whole digital asset space is based on decentralization. So whenever you have a, an asset now, uh, it might be held by a centralized counterparty like a, like a bank or a, or a brokerage firm. And so uh, there's that, that middleman who's taking the fee, but you're also um, uh, kind of compliant with, with their policies. And if a bank such as, uh, as Lehman Brothers were, were to fail, you might have some issues with the with the custody of your of your assets, and so this digital asset space was born out of that uh, that global financial crisis and and some of the the bank bailouts. And so what we're trying to do is is move from this this centralized counterparty of a of a bank or a brokerage firm and into a decentralized world. And and uh, instead of having all of your records at a bank, you could have all of your records. Uh, on a distributed ledger. So the bank has a ledger, right? It has all of your assets and all of your liabilities, but it's it's behind a paywall. The, the bank has control of that information and they, it's not necessarily easy to, uh, to access or, or transfer to, um, to another um, person, especially internationally. There's a lot of frictions to uh, transferring money uh, around the world. But the idea of this um, uh, distributed ledger is instead of having all of your financial records in one place with a centralized counterparty, what if we published your financial records under, under an address and all of those financial records were, were publicly available? And that's the idea of a public ledger. All of your assets, all of your liabilities, just an account number, not on your name, actually disclosed to the, to the public. And then what we have is this distributed ledger. So on the Bitcoin blockchain, you have thousands of, uh, of miners, and those, those miners are, are constantly uh, verifying these balances and, and checking these ledgers. Uh, and the, the key innovation of, of Bitcoin was solving this problem of double spending. 
right? So if I have any digital asset, I can send it to as many people as I want. I can, I can copy a song, I can copy a movie, I can copy a document, and there's nothing unique about it. And so the, the key innovation of Bitcoin was to prevent this double spending, where if I send value on the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, that immediately comes out of my account and is not available to be, to be spent elsewhere. Okay, I think that makes sense. And the distributed ledger, would it be analogous to the internet, right? That it's that it exists amongst so many different servers and locations that nobody quote unquote owns it or controls it? Or is that a poor analogy? That, that's a great analogy, right? So okay. the idea is uh, what the, the internet has been to, um, to information, uh, the, the blockchain industry is to uh, financial markets. And so while you could buy your, your plane tickets or your, or your books or whatever on, on the internet, now you could have your, your entire um, banking, borrowing, lending, uh, insurance business uh, in this, uh, this digital asset world. And so the concept is it would reduce these friction costs or, or these barriers to entry for, for many parties that want to transact, especially internationally. But how do you define a cryptocurrency versus a, a token or a, just a digitalized fractional share of, a, of an asset? So this entire digital asset space uh, is tracked regularly on coinmarketcap.com. So you can see the up-to-the-minute value of the entire crypto space, uh, as well as the individual token. So right now, it's, a, it's about a $2 trillion space, and 60% of that value is on Bitcoin and, and Ethereum. And there's about 80 tokens uh, or 80 digital assets tracked on CoinMarketCap uh, that have over a billion dollars in, in value. But there's 11,000 tokens, and the majority of those are going to be uh, worthless. Uh, and so we're going to focus on the top, uh, maybe the top 100 or the, the top few hundred tokens, because over 95% of the value is in those top uh, 100 tokens or, or two. So we're not going to worry about all 11,000 these. Just the, the top couple hundred are the, the ones that are interesting. So Bitcoin is what we call a cryptocurrency. Uh, Bitcoin doesn't do anything. You could either spend it or save it. And so it's literally like a uh, like a currency. And so you you can keep it in your in your wallet or your exchange account as a store of value, or you could send that value to, to someone else. So in a cryptocurrency, you could just spend it or save it. But Ethereum and, and some of these, these other uh, tokens are very interesting because owning that asset or spending that asset allows you access to a good or a service. And so somebody, somebody likened uh, Ethereum uh, and, uh, as a child of the 80s, right, to a, to a video game arcade, right? And the, the Ether tokens can be used in any of these machines. So uh, Ethereum blockchain is that, that first layer, that base layer. And now people are building applications on top of that. And so uh, this whole decentralized finance space where you're borrowing and lending and using insurance and all of these things that you, you know from the financial services industry, that could be built on top of, of Ethereum. And so you use the Ether token to, to pay to access these other um, uh, goods and services. I want to revisit a comment you made earlier just now, just to give people perspective. Current value of digital assets, roughly $2 trillion, you said. Current value of gold is right around $9 trillion. So you know, not quite there yet, but growing very quickly. Why would you say that the vast majority of these other 
tokens um, or or crypto uh, currencies are are worthless. Well, let, let's go back to your um, your internet analogy, right? Yeah, how is our um, digital assets like the internet? The the cryptocurrency space today might be a lot like the the dot com stocks of 1997, 1998, 1999, right? And we know that the vast majority of those companies that went public 97, 98, 99 did go bankrupt, right? And and there's only uh, a need for for so many um, uh, big companies in each space. And so you could say that um, you know these internet stocks were a failure because the majority of them went went bankrupt. But at the same time, out of that era came uh, Amazon and, and Google and, and Priceline and some of these huge companies today that add, not only have a huge stock market value, but have really changed the way that the world does business. And so you could, you could look at the, at the digital asset uh, world the same way. So uh, what's going to be the store of value? What's going to be the borrowing and lending platform? What's going to be the, the insurance platform? What's going to be any of these other businesses? They're working in web browsers and cloud storage. And some of these other things are, are backed by these, these digital tokens. And so just like you have a, a stock market with different industries, uh, with kind of the large cap stocks and the, and the small cap stocks, the digital asset world is the same thing. And so you have to look at you know, what is the, the value or the utility of this, of this good or service. And something like Dogecoin, it's, it's currently trading like it's valued at billions of dollars, but there's no functionality to it, right? The, the founders admit it's a joke and there's no, um, there's no useful uh, case for it. And so you have to look at how many users do they have? What's the functionality? Uh, what are the fees being paid on that protocol? And how is it being used? And so, if uh, if a, a digital asset doesn't have a doesn't have a white paper, doesn't have a plan, doesn't have a, a, a use case, uh, it's it's kind of hard to to ascribe any long term value to it. I see the conceptually. I think I understand, but from my perspective, a currency is a store of value and a medium of exchange. And I can certainly see the store of value argument here, but it hasn't really been widely adopted as a medium of exchange. You see that developing over time, where this will be, you know, a way that people transact business. I, I think something like like Bitcoin is is difficult to use as a as a medium of exchange because in the last three months, Bitcoin has hit you know thirty thousand dollars and sixty thousand dollars. There's a, there's a lot of volatility in that market, and in Bitcoin, uh, every transaction is taxable. So the 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 IRS in the in the U.S says um, every transaction you do, whether you're going to buy a, a cup of coffee or a, or a Tesla, uh, that is effectively selling a, um, uh, an asset. And then you're going to have to pay taxes on short-term gains or, or long-term gains. So with that kind of volatility and that kind of taxation, it's hard to see that as a medium of exchange. But if you get into stable coins, the, uh, the calculus is, is completely different. And so a lot of these um, exchanges have stable coins. So there's the, the Binance coin and there's, um, you know, the, the, the Gemini dollar and, um, you know, Tether and, and um, you know, USDC. And these are pegged at $1. And then there's some that are pegged to the price of gold or pegged to the price of euros. So if you have a stable coin that's, that's pegged to a dollar and it's always going to be a dollar, now you don't have the, the worry about the, the taxation of every transaction. 
And now you don't have to worry about, uh, about volatility. And there's starting to be um, credit cards you could use to transact in the real world, just like a Visa or MasterCard, that you could, uh, you could draw down your, your stablecoin account, which is also earning uh, yield at the exchange. Okay. <laughs> there's a lot going on here, but th- that, that's helpful. But I want to get into how a, a individual or a family should think about this. But one more definition for me. What's the difference between an exchange and a wallet? The largest exchanges uh, in, in the U.S. are, uh, are Binance, uh, Gemini, and Coinbase. And those are where uh, you could interface uh, to your bank in dollars, right? So uh, at, at Binance or Gemini or Coinbase, you could send money from your bank to the exchange. And then when you're on the exchange, you could buy those cryptocurrencies and, and digital assets. And then when you sell them, you could actually take the money back out of what we call fiat currency and send it back to the bank, right? So the, the exchange is the on-ramp or the, or the off-ramp uh, from the, the, the fiat world, the dollar world, into that world of, uh, of digital currencies. Now, you could choose to keep your digital assets uh, on, on an exchange. And so it's going to look a lot like a, a brokerage account. So you could log in and, and see your, your stocks on your, on your brokerage account. Or you could log into your crypto exchange and see your, your crypto balance. Uh, but there's um, security issues any, any way you hold these, uh, these digital assets. And so if you're holding your digital assets on an exchange, uh, if someone is able to, uh, to access that exchange, uh, then your funds uh, could be vulnerable there. And the most famous one uh, a few years back was, was Mt. Gox. It was built uh, you know, to trade trading cards. Uh, it wasn't uh, the, the highest security, and there was a, a lot of coins that, that were lost there. And so some people will say, uh, I want to I buy the coins on the, on the exchange, and then I want to transfer them uh, into a, a wallet. It might be like a, a USB, where you take physical possession of your, of your assets. Uh, but when you take physical p- possession of your, your assets, you're taking all of that value into your own hands. And you need to remember the, the password or the passphrase. Uh, you're controlling the, the public key, which is like your, your email address where people can, can send you uh, information or value. But you're also controlling the private key, which is like your, your password. And you can't re- withdraw value without that password or that, that private key. Uh, and so if, if your, your asset is held completely offline, it can't be hacked, right? If, if you have a, a USB key in your desk, uh, there's no access uh, from the internet into that, and it's perfectly safe until you have a fire, until you have a flood, until you die, until you forget your password. And uh, then uh, even though it's perfectly safe from the, the internet, you can still lose that value uh, in that physical custody as well. So let's talk about value. How is the market valuing these things today? And what's, what's the right way as an individual or in family to think about how to leg into the market, how to, to underwrite some of the valuations? We obviously, Bitcoin, the volatility has been enormous. What are the pillars that, that underlie the valuation on these assets? Right. So we see that the, the volatility of these, uh, these digital assets could be three times or more greater than what we see in the stock market. And so we look at the, at the stock market might have annual volatility of, of maybe 15 to 30 percent. But these top coins 
might have volatility of, of 60 to 120%. So uh, it's, it's you know, two to five times more volatile than the, than the stock market because people are really trying to figure out what the, what the value of this space is. Um, but one of the things you could look at is the revenue on, on some of these platforms. And, uh, you know, some people think there's, you know, zero value to, to any of this. Uh, but if you look at uh, what, what's going on in the space, uh, some people compare them to the value of a large bank, or some people compare them to the value of a, of a futures exchange or a stock exchange, right? And so clearly in the stock market, we say we know how to value a bank or, or a stock exchange or a futures exchange. And those are real companies with, with billions of dollars of, of value. And some people are taking that same model and going out to the, to the crypto space. And so people are paying a lot of fees to do this, uh, this trading and to send the money around. Of course, we hope that those fees are less than you would pay to, to something like Western Union to, to transfer money from, from one country to another. But over the last 12 months, there's been over, over um, $4 billion of fees paid in Ethereum. And then uh, over a billion dollars of fees combined paid in, in Uniswap and SushiSwap. And so if you look at the trading fees uh, and the borrowing and lending fees, the, the interest that's going through these platforms, uh, you can start to say, okay, what's the, the, the price to sales ratio of this project uh, relative to uh, an exchange or a bank? And then they start looking like, uh, like real businesses that you could try to value. So why is Bitcoin so volatile? Why are these crypto assets so volatile in your opinion? Part of it is because uh, it's decentralized, right? There's no one in charge of Bitcoin. And uh, that's, that's both a, a bug and a feature, right? So the idea is um, no one's in charge of Bitcoin. You can't shut it down, right? So we don't know who Satoshi Nakamoto is, right? We don't know who started Bitcoin, but now Bitcoin's running on, on thousands of computers in you know, hundreds of countries around the world. And so it's, it's really hard to, to shut it down. So it's, it's completely un, unregulated uh, is the way it was designed. But on top of that, some of these, these brokers and exchanges uh, are also uh, decentralized and unregulated. And so one of the, the issues we have is with levered trading. So we see some exchanges offering leverage of 10 times to 100 times trading. And uh, so people can go out with uh, with a thousand dollars and control a hundred thousand uh, dollars worth of uh, of a digital asset. Uh, and so when that happens, um, you have a thousand dollars controlling a hundred thousand dollars of digital asset. So whenever you lose a, a one thousand dollars, that exchange is going to automatically sell that that remaining value of your currency, uh, and they do it in in a split second without regards to to value. So the, the leverage trading is one of the things um, uh, driving this. There's also a, a huge issue of sentiment in, in social media, right? And, and so YouTube and, and Twitter are actually the main sources of, uh, of information in a lot of this, uh, this cryptocurrency business. And so there's a lot of media outlets uh, specialized in the crypto space that are, that are giving good information, but a lot of the, um, the original information is coming from from Twitter or uh, or YouTube, so we've really got this um, this social media sentiment driving things as well. So uh, you know, one day Elon Musk says, "Oh, uh, Tesla's going to accept Bitcoin uh, to buy cars," and then then a few days, a few weeks later, Tesla's not going to accept uh, Bitcoin to buy cars. 
And so MicroStrategy and Coinbase and and Tesla have this in their in their corporate stra- uh, in their corporate treasury uh, as a as a reserve asset. And so every time we see a company, um, you know, buying this instead of gold or cash uh, to put on their balance sheet, that that increases the um, the the sentiment. And so uh, just just the last week or two, we've seen new companies come in and announce that Bitcoin will be a, a treasury asset for them. And that um, that drives up the the demand. And one of the key issues that that people are pointing to for the the value case for Bitcoin is there's only 21 million Bitcoin ever going to be mined. There's about 18 million in circulation today. Over the next hundred years, there's going to be uh, three million more. And so it's that it's that supply versus demand. And so if there's a fixed supply and a growing demand, if people want to have this uh, this Bitcoin. The, the price is going to need to drop. And, and, and so is is that limited supply? I'm just going to assume that's right. I'm not even going to pretend to understand how that would work or how that does work, but let's assume that's a known fact. So is that why the parallel to gold is the most useful way to think about it? There's just a limited supply in the world? Right. And and so that that's uh, how the, the Bitcoin community would, would like to value it, right? So Bitcoin has a limited supply and gold has a has a limited supply, uh, and that that's how they they try to ascribe value to it. But ultimately, this is going to be valued as supply versus demand. And if if people believe it's valuable, and uh, people are bringing you know corporate treasury assets into it, uh, if there's a large number of users with a limited supply, that's going to support that that value. Okay. Now let, let's get into some practicalities here. And the timing is really good because I'm an accredited investor. Um, I have a large allocation towards real estate through my operating company and through my investments. I have an allocation towards the public markets, pretty vanilla stuff. And I'm dipping my toe in the water in the crypto space. So how do individuals and families, how should they think about asset allocation? And then I want to get into how you actually access these types of investments. But how do you think about kind of on a percentage basis, what your exposure should be into these type of uh, investments? Uh, Because the volatility is so high and the the valuation is uncertain, um, most investors should have a a relatively small weight. Any any one of these coins uh, could go to zero. Uh, And so you want to to, uh, understand that risk. Hopefully, we're beyond the point where you know Bitcoin and Ethereum and some of these other top twenty coins uh, could go to could go to zero. But um, these are tremendously risky assets, and so adding them into your portfolio should be done at a at a relatively small weight. So a couple of years back, there was a paper from uh, from Bitwise. It's a, a Silicon Valley, San Francisco company that studies uh, cryptocurrencies and, and has some investment products. And so what they did is they went back for um, maybe five years or so. It's not like we bought Bitcoin at you know three cents, right? We bought Bitcoin at maybe a thousand dollars, and then we looked at it uh, as it went to maybe fifteen thousand dollars over uh, over a five year period, and we said, uh, what? How did this modify uh, the risk and reward statistics of your portfolio? So the old school pension portfolio is sixty percent in stocks and forty percent in bonds, and so what? Bitwise did is they said, what would happen if we put 1% Bitcoin into the 60-40 portfolio? Or what would happen if we put 2.5% Bitcoin into this uh, into the 60-40 portfolio? And when you're looking at the volatility of a portfolio, there's actually three mathematical drivers 
of how risky that portfolio is going to be. One is the volatility on each of the individual assets. One is the size of each position or the weights. And then the third one, which, which a lot of people really don't understand as much, is the correlation between them. And so if, uh, if stocks go up and Bitcoin goes down or Bitcoin goes up and stocks go down, that's really good for your portfolio because what we see is that there's a diversifying effect. And so uh, on the same day, if half your assets go up and half your assets go down, you're going to have maybe a zero return, which is a, a, a relatively low volatility. So what the, what the Bitwise study um, said was if you add Bitcoin to your portfolio over a period of time when it goes from 1,000 to 15,000, um, it's going to enhance your return, right? That's no surprise, right? If you buy something that goes up you know, 15 times over five years, that's going to add to the return of your portfolio. But what was really interesting here, if you buy uh, Bitcoin at a 1% weight or a 2.5% weight, the volatility of your stock and bond portfolio was unchanged, right? So even though you add this asset with a, with 100% volatility into your portfolio, the volatility of your portfolio didn't increase. Your portfolio didn't become more risky because stocks and bonds and, and digital assets are different things. And to the extent that they move in different directions on different days, uh, a very small allocation to digital assets is not likely to, to, to move the needle on the risk in your portfolio. But if you get to 5%, 10%, or 20% in digital assets, the volatility of those cryptocurrencies is going to swamp the volatility of the, the, the stocks and bonds in your portfolio, and you're going to live and die on a daily basis on the, on the value of the individual coins in your portfolio. That's fascinating, actually. Um, but I think the takeaway is, uh, you know, a small percentage of your overall asset allocation should go towards some of these investments. And what is the, be you know, famously, or as I've done my homework, you can't buy some of these assets on your traditional brokerage platforms yet. And so is the best way to access these by going through a Gemini or a Coinbase or one of these other platforms? Uh, so th that's that's buying the the, the coins uh, directly, right? And so when you go through that uh, that platform, you have to choose which coins I want to buy and the, the the size of of each of those trades. There there are some fund like vehicles uh, in the in the U.S. Um, you know the leaders are somebody like a, a Bitwise or a Grayscale in uh, in Canada. You know maybe Three IQ, and you would be able to buy those um, as a fund. In your uh, in your brokerage account, but uh, importantly, they're not ETFs yet. They're they're still um, trust or closed end funds, which means that uh, they're not going to trade one for one with the value of the currency. And we've seen the um, the, the grayscale products trade at a at a thirty percent premium or a fifteen percent discount relative to the value of the coins. And so they are uh, eligible to be held in your in your brokerage account. Uh, but they do bring some some other um, you know complexities and, and valuation differences uh, into your portfolio. But if you did want to access them directly, you have to go through one of these exchange apps, right? As of today, that, that's right. Okay. And so, say I choose Coinbase because it seems to be kind of the eight hundred pound gorilla in the world. Um, how do I think through the decision making process of? Okay, so I've got my allocation. And I understand how to access it. To your point, there's all of these different coins and options. I mean, how do you think through 
uh, an allocation to Bitcoin versus Ethereum versus some of these stable coins? What's the right way to evaluate that risk reward? So what we see in the in the crypto space is that Bitcoin is uh, is 900 billion of that two trillion, so about 45 percent, and then Ethereum is about uh, 15 percent. And so um, most people would probably uh, have the majority of their portfolio uh, in in Bitcoin and or uh, Ethereum. And so those are the the, the largest, most liquid, uh, kind of most well understood. And hopefully we're beyond the point that. Uh, that both of those are, are going to zero, uh, but some other people might say, um, you know, I want to I want to index the the top ten, index the top twenty, uh, or I want to to go into some of these um, decentralized finance coins as well. And so, but you you do want to you do want to do your homework and um, and understand what what these coins are. Now, what what's interesting is um, these coins can can earn yield. Uh, and this brings us all into the whole um, decentralized uh, finance space. Uh, and so um, Gemini is, is probably the, the platform that, that has the, the largest number of coins that, that could pay a yield right now. So if you hold your, your Bitcoin or Ethereum on Gemini right now, they'll pay you a 2% annual pick yield uh, paid in kind. And so if you, if you put in you know, 100 Ethereum, at the end of a year, you'll have 102 Ethereum, so you're earning a, a yield there. Other coins might uh, might pay one to four percent yield. But what's interesting on on Gemini is the Gemini stable coin, the Gemini dollar, is currently yielding over seven percent. So now people might say, you know, maybe I um, I trust Gemini. They're trying to be regulated. They're they're trying to be locked down on the security. They're they're really talking to the government. They're they're really trying to do things the right way. If you could understand the the custody and the and the risk you're taking there, think about earning seven percent on a stablecoin investment at a time when treasuries are earning you one percent or junk bonds are are, are yielding you four percent. So if you could understand the the custody and the regulation and the risk you're taking simply by being in crypto, it might be less risk to earn seven percent on a Gemini dollar. Than to invest in a in a basket of uh, junk bonds with a three or four percent. And how do they? You might not know, but how does that work? How can they have a yield if they're not in general circulation, or is it just a, a big incentive to get people to utilize the platform, or they're using venture capital money and investor dollars to produce that that pick yield? So what we see is there's a decentralized finance community. So. Uh, in these platforms, there's borrowing and lending. And so when they're paying you 2% on your, on your Bitcoin or Ethereum, what Gemini is doing is they're lending, uh, they're lending against that to people who are willing to borrow, right? And so they might be willing to borrow at whatever, a 4 or 5% yield. Gemini might, might keep that, that spread. So that maybe they're, they're lending out Bitcoin at, at 5%. They're paying you 2%. And like any bank, they're, they're keeping that, that spread. And there's some interesting reasons uh, why people might want to, to borrow uh, against the value of their, of their Bitcoin or their, their Ethereum. So remember, we talked about uh, taxation. Short-term tax is at your, um, at your marginal income tax rate, but long-term gains held 12 months is going to be at a, at a much lower uh, rate, right? Maybe 10 or 15% on the long-term gains. And so if you've got a big gain in, in one of these currencies and, and um, you know, two trillion dollars. A lot of people have a lot of gains here that that might not be 
long term because a year and a half ago, this is a $500 billion space. Let's say you're, you're 10 months in, you don't want to liquidate at that at that 30% tax rate. Uh, you you try to to borrow against it or, or hedge against it um, to, to go two more months to get that 10 or 15% tax rate. And so you might need uh, liquidity to you know pay some bills or buy a house, uh, and you might access the liquidity there. Uh, you might borrow to to lever into other uh, into other currencies. And as strange as it might sound, people might think that um, you know Bitcoin or Ethereum are low risk or low volatility compared to other coins in this in this space. So they might take liquidity from their from their large cap coins and then reinvest it in into some of the the, the mid cap and, and small cap coins. So there there are kind of legitimate reasons that the people are willing to um, to pay a yield uh, in order to borrow in this space. Fascinating and so interesting to see this what would be termed you know a few years ago a decade ago the wild west of of currencies to have a normalized lending functionality you know um, like a traditional bank would as well. Um, it's just fascinating. Um, but but people people like this decentralized world, right? So um, th- what they say in in crypto is code is law, right? Whatever the whatever the software says is is how things work. And so uh, this is this is asset based lending. It's securitized lending, right? So we don't care if you're if you're 12 years old, if you're from this country, if you're this this race or this gender. You know, all of these issues we might have with a with a centralized banking system. You know, you you work as a as a gig economy, or you work in 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 cryptocurrency. You might not be able to get a, a standard loan from a standard bank. But uh, in this um, decentralized world, uh, you know, the code is the law, and your assets are the assets. And so, if you can show you know a specific balance in your in your Bitcoin or Ethereum, uh, you do have access to to cash. Uh, even when uh, a, a centralized counterparty like a, a traditional bank uh, might not give you uh, liquidity there, which is which is I think one of the more compelling um, theses behind this entire industry is that um, equity and inclusion component of it, right? Um, where there's not uh, a political body saying. No, because of your race, gender, ethnicity, ethnicity, et cetera, that you can't get a traditional mortgage or you can't get access to these type of products and goods and services. It really is, you know, to use a word that I think is hackneyed at this point, democratizing access to this entire institutional space. In, and it's really interesting. And in the U.S., we're, we're debating, you know, whether inflation or interest rates should be 2% or 6%. Right. And that, um, you know, because Bitcoin has this fixed supply and the, the Fed is doing QE and, you know, all of the stimulus, uh, you know, the, the, the dollar is going to tank. But that that really doesn't matter. Right. Whether inflation is two percent or six percent, you know, the, the, the dollar is still going to have some value. But where we've seen the, the most extreme examples, as, as you said, of equity and inclusion is in some emerging markets. Right. Imagine being in Zimbabwe or, or Venezuela, Argentina, where your, your currency you know, is getting cut in half on a on an annual basis or on a daily basis, uh, and so what we've seen is, um, you know, in in Kenya, the entire um, banking system is built on people's phones, right? Um, using some of these uh, these technologies, and so some of the, the the poorest people in the world who've who've never had a bank account, the the first experience they have uh, is in cryptocurrency, and you know, if you're in Venezuela. You don't care if if Bitcoin is thirty thousand dollars or sixty thousand dollars, 
right? You care that it saved you from a, a 98% destruction of the value of your home currency uh, in, in just a, a matter of, of months. And, and so the weaker your home currency is, the, the more compelling uh, cryptos are as a, as a store of value. Because uh, you know, we're blessed in the, in the US um, with the low volatility of the dollar and the value of the dollar as a, as a global reserve currency. And you know, debating whether you know, rates or inflation are 2% or 6% are really small problems uh, relative to what um, people in the rest of the world have uh, experienced currently or in the past. Yeah, I'm listening to uh, um, an autobiography right now of an investor who, who uh, participated in the post-Soviet breakup economy. And he talks about how in the 90s, the, the Russians just allowed the ruble to go to zero, basically. They didn't even bother to try to support it through inflationary measures. And so the amount of financial destruction that occurred because of that, because these people didn't really understand how, you know, uh, fiat currency finance worked because they didn't they hadn't done it for a long time. You can see how you don't want to be necessarily at the whims of some of these, uh, you know, central banks and centralized governments. Um, right, and and so we see the greatest destruction comes when you're holding cash or when you're holding uh, bonds or debt, right? Which takes us to alternative investment, right? The the richest people in countries with um, with controlled currencies or currencies of, of um, questionable value, they're the ones that are buying real estate. They're the ones that are buying crypto, getting their money out of the country, buying buying art or, or gold, right? Some of the the, the biggest, uh, most expensive properties in London or New York are from you know these Russian oligarchs, and they say if I own an apartment in in New York or, or London and I put a bunch of you know hundred million dollars worth of art in there, right? The, the, the government doesn't have control over that apartment in London and the art inside. And so when, whenever we have uh, you know, worries about the, the value of a, of a currency or the ability of a government to, to seize that currency, the more interested we are in real estate or art or gold or, or crypto, um, because um, you know, art and gold and crypto are, are relatively easy to move uh, across borders. And hopefully if you own stocks or real estate, there's still some some value to those assets, even if that that currency's been debased. So we're going way over time, but this is so interesting to me, and I'm learning so much that I have, I've got to ask one more kind of big question: How do central bank digital currencies, or what's referred to as CBDCs, play into this whole conversation? Uh, so this might be one of the one of the biggest risks to the to the crypto space is um, the central bank digital currencies as well as regulations, and so. In some countries, they say um, uh, we want to control it, right? So in Nigeria or India, they're they're toying with the idea that it's illegal to own cryptocurrency. And just in the last few weeks, we saw uh, China say no more crypto miners uh, in in China. Um, you know, supposedly because of the the pollution issues of using you know coal coal fired electricity to run the, the the Bitcoin mining. And so probably the the biggest risk besides understanding how the, the custody works and, and controlling the, the security of your coins is regulation. And, and so one of the, the, the key concerns is what if there's a, a digital yuan in, in China? What if there's a Fed dollar in the US? Or you know, uh, uh, Bitcoin is legal tender in, in El Salvador. They want you to use it for, for everyday transactions. And then in the Bahamas, we already have the sand dollar as, the, as you know, one of the national currencies. And so to the extent that um, you know, people like using things 
that are in distributed ledger, that are digital, that are easy to transfer, you know, people might trust, you know, a Fed coin more than they trust, you know, the Gemini dollar. So if the Fed comes in and builds this, this digital currency, you could have dollars in the bank or you could have Fed dollars on your, um, on your phone. Um, that's a pretty big uh, competitor to this, to this decentralized world. And as you said, parts of this are, are still Wild West. But if it's backed by, you know, the Chinese government or the U.S. government, you might say, okay, now this is a, a traditional establishment asset, and we don't have to go into this this wild west of, of crypto uh, in order to have, um, you know, the the instant nature of transfers or the lower cost of doing business in this digital world. But it still doesn't solve the problem of, you know, you have no control over the Fed pumping huge amounts of liquidity into the system, right? I mean that that currency would still represent the the decisions yeah of the fed or the tre- or the secretary of treasury right that, that that's right one dollar $1 is one dollar right? right and uh you know the 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 people who are really into digital currencies especially uh the the ones that have this limited supply they're saying you know look look at bitcoin uh 21 million coins or look at ethereum or transitioning to, uh, to a deflationary currency where the number of, of Ether tokens might decline over time uh, and compare that to um, you know, even central banks in the developed world that are putting all of this stimulus out there. Uh, and, and so look at, the, look at the value of the dollar relative to what um, you know, a, a gallon of gas or you know, a, a house cost you know, 20 years or, or 50 years ago, and you'll, you'll see uh, the, the extent to which fiat can uh, degrade over time, right? And so, if you've got this, um, you know, two percent inflation and the and the rule of seventy, right? The value of your um, fiat currency is getting cut in half in thirty-five years, uh, simply because of this uh, this inflation. Thank you so much. We're we're up against time, but this has been awesome. I would love to have you on again and ask you a bunch of really hard questions because <laughs> you answer them so well. One final zinger, you personally. Do you think we should have gone off the gold standard? There's there's one there's one problem with the gold standard, right? So the gold standard was thirty five dollars uh, per ounce, right? And now gold is something like uh, you know fifteen hundred, seventeen hundred in in that neighborhood. Uh, so since nineteen seventy, uh, the the dollar's quote unquote devalued from you know thirty five dollars an ounce up to you know seventeen hundred an ounce. But the problem is. If every dollar is backed by gold, what do we say the value of gold was, right? Um, you know, $9 trillion, right? Now, the, the amount of gold limits the amount of economic activity, right? So even though uh, it might have uh, caused inflation, we saw huge inflation, you know, 15% in the 1970s. Part of that was coming off the gold standard. But if you're using gold as a medium of exchange and there's only $9 trillion of gold to go around, you're actually limiting the the potential size of the economy. So um, we we do like um, you know having dollars backed by by some type of asset, but there's probably not enough gold in the world uh, to facilitate the the level of economic activity we'd like to have. It still is incredible to me just conceptually the fiat currency. It just because we all communally agree. I mean, obviously there's a lot more to it, but that a dollar is worth a dollar, right? Um, it's just. It's remarkable how it all kind of breaks down to that. Keith, thank you again. Um, if people are interested in learning more about the content you're creating uh, or the organization in general and all the good things you're doing within the space, especially in the alternatives world, what's the best way for them to learn more? 
Uh, so our website is, uh, is kaya.org. So there you can learn about our, our one-year program, a level one and a level two exam. You can also uh, learn about the fundamentals of alternative investments. It's a 20-hour video-based program. That's a good overview of uh, venture capital, hedge funds, real assets, and structured products. And then kaya.org uh, slash blog uh, has, has hundreds of, of articles uh, written by our Kaya team, as well as uh, outside authors. So I've got a number of things on crypto and SPACs and all of that uh, that are out there on, on kaya.org slash blog. And then you could visit for, for webinars as, as well. So we're probably at the point uh, during COVID of a, of a webinar a week uh, somewhere in the world. So we've, we've got those archived uh, and you could go out and, and see that, that content as well. Yeah, and I definitely encourage everyone listening to, to access this content. That, um, the subject matter expertise they have is incredible. Um, they're unbiased, right? They're just trying to educate people and their stuff is really good uh, as somebody who's a novice trying to understand this world. But Keith, thank you so much for taking the time. I'd love to have you back on and uh, again, I really encourage people to connect with you and learn more about what Kai is doing. So thank you. Thanks, Brian. Great, great to talk with you today. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.